The Matthew chapter 18 is a new teaching unit. It's a new section of um, breaking from the narrative into another um, teaching section where Jesus is focusing on really on the kingdom and what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And he's, he starts the chapter off with them returning to Capernaum, and then he starts chapter 19 off with them leaving again, and those locations are the clues that Matthew gives us, that he's, that he's got something in between there that all goes together. He uses, tends to use location often to switch from theme to theme or from uh, topic to topic. And so this is one of those clues that we've been looking for throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the, the Reformed Study Bible says this, this is the fourth of five great teaching discourses in Matthew. And Jesus sets the tone for life in his church, where the smallest are honored and protected, where sinners are treated as lost sheep to be found and as brothers to be reclaimed, and forgiveness flows freely and constantly to those who repent. And now in, in chapter 18, there's three buckets, as that just brought out, um, three major buckets that we want to focus on. And, and while there could be 10 sermons on this, we're going to try to do it in three. And while there's more than three buckets or three main teachings there, we're just going to focus on three together. Um, and this morning, uh, we'll show you what those three buckets are. I'll, I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Um, chapter 18, verses 1 through 10, we're talking about humility. Uh, verses 11 through 20, um, one commentator put it as purity. Uh, another put it as um, discipline or as restoration. And then the third topic being mercy. And Jesus weaves all three of these themes throughout his discourse um, in, in here, and he talks about humility, the purity, and the, and the mercy. And those who will be humble will be the greatest in the kingdom. The Father protects little ones and will make effort to restore those who stray, and Christians must mercifully forgive sinning brothers and sisters. Now, again, there's more than three ways to break down this chapter. We're going to focus on these three over the next three weeks. And this morning, we're going to zoom in on that first one, those first ten verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and they kind of look like this. They kind of break out a little bit differently than that. So in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 10, the section on humility, there's three things that all have to do with children. How many of you have children or have had children at one time and are willing to admit it in public, right? right? Children are a blessing from the Lord. Sometimes it's okay if you don't get blessings, and sometimes you wish you had more blessings, right? But they're blessings from the Lord. And in this section that we're going to look at, we're going to be talking about children and how Jesus is going to use uh, children as an example. And so in this humility outline, there's three major teachings. One is that we have to become like a child, and that's signified in the word, starts with the word therefore in verse 4. We need to welcome children in verse 5. He starts with that one. And in verse 6, not to cause the little children to fall away. So this is our outline for this morning, and we're going to be talking about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's start in chapter 18, verse 1. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, in verse 1, we have this phrase that's really important for us to, to kind of key in on here, and that is, in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's, it's that little uh, context that's telling you where the question is framed. For instance, if I said, who is the greatest athlete of all time, that's a little bit different than who's the greatest author of all time. 
And even the bucket of who's the greatest athlete needs to be narrowed down, right? Who's the greatest quarterback? Who's the greatest goalie? Who's the greatest, right? The, the, the GOAT, greatest of all time, right? We understand that phrase. Well, they're asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And this kingdom of heaven refers to all people who have accepted Jesus as their forgiver, as their redeemer, as their Lord. And that's an important clue from Matthew that this discourse that we're talking about, this section, applies to all of those who are the children of God, all those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. So the disciples have this question for Jesus. Who is the greatest in the church, in the kingdom, in God's economy? Who is the greatest among all of them? And it seems like a legit question, honestly, if you're thinking about it. You got 12 who are handpicked by Jesus, hanging out with them, and they want to know, hey, which one of us is the, is, is the top guy? Which one is going to be in charge? Right? Which one of us is most important? Now, Matthew almost makes it seem like it's an innocent little question. So, Jesus, tell us. That's not really how it played out. And you don't get that from Matthew's section. We need to go over to Mark. Let me show you how this reads in Mark. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. This wasn't just a little question. They were going back and forth like, no, um, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, Peter's the greatest, right? I mean, he's got to be. He's got to be Jesus' favorite. You know, he's always talking and everything. So they were actually debating among themselves, arguing who was the greatest. That's a little bit more spirited than, oh, they walked up and said, so Jesus, who is the greatest? It was a lot more spirited than that. There was some conflict going on here. And they weren't debating about anything theological. It's not like they opened up their Torahs and said, hey, so Jesus, teach us about this verse. It was, Jesus, tell us, which one of us is the top disciple? So I'm just curious, if I was to ask you today, who would you pick as one of the greatest disciples in the Bible? Um, who would you put on the top of that list? Let's just open it up. If, if, if we were debating in here, who's the greatest disciple of all time, of Jesus, who would you pick? Anybody? Peter. Peter? Okay. Anybody want to vote with Doug, or you got a different favorite? John the Baptist. Oh. John. Okay, he's pulling from way back. All right, we got John the Baptist. Anybody else? Paul? Yeah, like... Paul is one of, definitely one of the ones. He wrote most of our New Testament, and it's funny, he's not even here for the debate. Of course, neither is John. He lost his head before this, right? So, so who would you put as, as one of the, as the goats, you know, the greatest of all time when it comes to the disciples? And, and how would you pick, right? Um, maybe it would come down, if you're thinking about the 12 that were with Jesus, maybe it would come down to how many sick people they healed, or how many demons they cast out. Maybe they had a little checklist, you know, like if you're a football player, you can put the little marks on the helmet for your touchdowns. Maybe they had like little marks that they put, you know, on their robes or something for every demon they cast out or every sick person they healed. Maybe it's something like that. Um, maybe, you know, I mean, think about it. If somebody healed 30 people and somebody else only healed three, you could maybe say that the person who healed 30 was more important, right? Maybe. You're looking at me like I'm strange. But don't we look at the mega churches versus the small churches and say, well, they have more people and they have more of this and so they must be better? Maybe it's the people who um, had the most access to Jesus, the people who were closest to him. 
I mean, just not long before this, Jesus went up to the mountain and he took Peter and James and John with him. He picked three out of the 12 as his faves and went up the mountain with them, only them. And then as he was coming down, he said, don't tell the others what you saw until I'm gone. So maybe it's those that had access. That would certainly make them more important, right? I mean, think about it. If you have access to somebody who's really significant, if you have access to the president, I certainly don't, then you obviously are a very important person if you have access to that important person, right? If you're able to be around them all the time. So maybe that's what they were talking about. Maybe that's part of their criteria. Maybe it's who is in the spotlight the most, right? And that would probably put Peter on the list for sure. I mean, he attempted to walk on water when nobody else would. He sank, but he started out at least. He was the one who first said Jesus was the Messiah. Um, Jesus had a special conversation with him and gave him a new name, said, you are Peter, said of Simon, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. He already told Peter, you're special. I'm going to build my church on you. Um, when, when the people for that were collecting the tax that David talked about last week came to the disciples, they talked to Peter. They didn't go over to the other guys. They went to Peter and said, why doesn't Jesus pay this tax? Or does Jesus pay this tax? And when there was a crowd and Jesus was asking a question to the disciples, it was Peter who spoke for everybody else. So maybe, um, you know, Peter is the one that was recognized as a leader by both Jesus and others. So certainly that would make him greater than all the other disciples, right? Could you picture this debate playing out? Could you picture 12 grown men walking on a road, discussing among themselves which one of them is the best? Now, I know none of you do this at work, right? None at all. Uh, None of you do this at home. I, I get it. But could you picture this, just 12 guys doing this on the road? When we're making comparisons, there's always something or someone that we have to compare to. So if they're determining who's the greatest, then they're comparing to someone or something else, and in this case, it's to each other. And it's a common thing for us to do. I mean, you don't compare yourself to anybody else, do you? You know what I've learned about comparison? Just a side note. There's always someone who's got more or is better, and there's always someone who has less or is worse. Isn't that true? I mean, you can play the comparison game all day long. It's kind of like statistics and analytics. You can come up with just about any answer you want depending upon which sampling you're going to go with for your, for your comparison. They're comparing against each other. So what does Jesus do? I love it. So Jesus calls a small child and had him stand among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you turn or repent and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus brings in a child and says, this is what you need to compare yourself to. He uses the word, you, unless you are like this child. That's a comparison phrase, right? You're comparing yourself to each other. You want to know who is the greatest. He says, let me tell you where you're going to start your comparison. Here's a child. You need to be like this child. So what does it mean to be like a child, right? What does it mean to be like a child? So I have a quiz. I came with a quiz. If you answer it right, you get to leave today. If not, you have to help clean up after the youth event next week. Okay? To come to Jesus, you must have blank like a child. What is it? How many of you say faith? Yeah? Yeah? 
If you answer it faith, you're among the majority. My challenge to you would be to find a verse in the scriptures that say it. Jars of Clay even had a song called Faith Like a Child. Any of you, I'm dating myself going back to Jars of Clay. Any of you remember that song with Faith Like a Child? You say that I can move the mountains. You say, if I have faith like a child. So it's got to be in the Bible, right? I mean, there's a Christian band that wrote a song about it. I want you to continue reading in our passage and see if you come up with a different answer. Matthew 18, I'm going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name, welcomes me. So if you were to start back there again and fill in that blank, what might you come up with? Yeah. If you're going to come to Jesus, you must have humility like a child. Now, Mark and Luke are two of the other Gospels that, carry, that cover this same exact passage that we're looking at. And so, um, as you read those encounters, those versions of this teaching, you get different insights into what that means, what humility means, what it means to be like a child. Um, and so what I've done is I've put together a mashup for you. You're familiar with our mashups, which is where we take all three passages and we combine them together and we color code them. And you look at it and it might seem a little confusing to you, but I'm going to actually like take the passage from, passages from all three of them and then make them into one narrative. And it'll be online with the study notes later on when David gets it online so you can look at it. Um, but I'm going to try to do it with you here. So they came to Capernaum. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about in the way? But they were silent. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, sat down and he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he called a small child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to him, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes the little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me not only welcomes me, but the one who sent me. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever is least among you, this one is great." Are you seeing some more details in there that kind of jump out as far as what it means to be like a child? So some things to note, Jesus was in a house with his disciples, as a matter of fact, in, in Capernaum. So this may have been one of the disciples' kids that he called up. So imagine me just saying, hey, I want to take somebody's kid, just bring you up here. You need to be like Levi. Or you need to be like any of the children here in this church building. And a child in Jesus' day, though, would have been a preteen, under the age of 13. Now, have you ever wondered why, why Jesus says you need to be like little children instead of saying you need to be like teenagers? <laughs> Just, I never wondered that. It's like, you know, my, my brain goes there. You need to be like a child. He doesn't say teenager. He doesn't say adult. He's just child. Okay, got it. 
Um, he had this child stand among them, and he puts his arm around the child. And we don't know anything else about this child. We don't know the exact age. We don't know the, the name. We don't know the gender. All we know is that this was a little child, so under the age of 13, but obviously able to stand on their own, somewhere in that age range. And Jesus calls this child in and puts his arm around him and says, you need to be like this child. So in response to the argument the disciples were having about greatness, Jesus said that his followers have to have the humility of a child. Now, I have a feeling that some of you that have kids in the house are thinking, I don't think of humility when I think of children. Right? How many of you had that thought run through your mind? Come on, let's be honest. Yeah, absolutely. That's not the word that comes to mind when, when I'm thinking about children's. We should realize that parenting in the first century was much different than parenting is today. As a matter of fact, the, the disrespect that I see today um, that many children have for their parents really grieves me. And the harshness and the lack of care from parents today is even more heart-wrenching. You know, when, when the schools have to have a school day so that some kids can even get a meal because they won't get one at home, This mashup explains that this humility of children is in the context of serving others or putting others ahead of themselves. And looking back at the Jewish family unit, according to the Torah and the prophets, we can see that it really does make sense that way. In our society, we might not. How many of you think of children as the people who serve you? Kind of, right? It depends on the day and the task, right? Normally, it's us serving them, right? In, in Jewish society, things were a little bit different. Um, here's here's some, great, some great commentary on this. God commanded children to honor their fathers and mothers, and there's a couple of verses up there. They were to obey them. You all getting this, you kids that are still in here? Obey them, adhere to their teachings, show them respect, care for them and their property, my parents are here, so I know that they're taking notes. Amen. My dad used to quote for me the first commandment with promise. Anybody know what that is? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, and what? You will live long in the land that God is bringing you to. And I used to quote back to him, well, to live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> But to honor one's parents is something that obviously is important. Children were expected to listen to authorities, to not try to be the authority. They were to be obedient and submissive to their parents. As a matter of fact, if you had a really unruly child, there were some harsh punishments. I mean, really harsh punishments. Check this one out. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them even after they discipline him, his father and mother are to take hold of him and bring him to the elders of his city, to the gate of his hometown. And they will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Whoa. <laughs> Many of us wouldn't be here today if that was the case in today's society. Right? A child's place in a Jewish household was not the head of the house, 
but was to be subservient, subservient to the house. They were to be servants in the household under the leadership of someone greater than himself or herself. And that submissiveness and servitude would be the qualities that are honored. We see this even in the New Testament um, in Colossians chapter 3. Um, it says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So back to our passage. The disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. This is the Greek word megas, um, the, the ones in charge. Who are the ones in charge? Who are the bosses? Who are the ones who are really um, the important people? And Jesus said, greatness comes from humility, from being servants like children who listen and obey their parents. So for the disciples, it would be listening and obeying their heavenly father. That's where greatness comes from. So after saying that the followers of Jesus must be like children, Jesus moves on to his second teaching. So the first teaching is, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you must have humility like a child, not faith like a child, humility like a child. You must be willing to submit yourself to God's leadership and fall under his care. Not be the one in charge, but allow him to be the one in charge. This is what we mean when we say that he is the Lord of our lives. When we call him Lord, it means that he is the one that's in charge or over us. The second thing he says is that we have to welcome other children. Okay, so chapter 18, verse 5. Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. And so welcoming that one child, he's holding this child, one child like this welcomes me. In addition to being like little children, humble, Jesus said that his followers must welcome other little children. And when we do this, we welcome Jesus also. Now, Mark goes a little further again, and Mark says um, that we, um, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So Mark says we not only welcome Jesus, but we welcome the Heavenly Father. Now, that's a weird phrase for us, isn't it? If you welcome a child, you're welcoming Jesus and you're welcoming the Father. That just, in our society, I, I can't think of how that is like a normal sentence we would say. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, I think, in our culture. Um, it's a strange phrase for us. But to welcome is to receive or to accept. So if you came to my house and you knocked on my door and I opened the door and I let you in, I've welcomed you, I've accepted you into my house. If you've been in my house more than once or twice, you know you don't even have to knock, you can just let yourself in the front door and just say, I'm here. Because you've been welcomed or accepted. So to welcome is to receive or accept. And little children in this context represent the lowest of the family unit. So let me plug that in and see if it hits you any different. Whoever accepts the lowest in the family of God accepts Jesus and the Father. Whoever accepts the lowest in the family of God accepts Jesus and the Father. Does that make a little more sense? Those that were important in this society back then were often separated from those that were not as important. For instance, women and children were lower class citizens in their day. They were separated often from the men. 
there was a hierarchy in both the family um, and the church. As a matter of fact, if you went to the temple, there was a place for the high priest, only he could go, and then there was a place for the priests, and then there was a, a court for the men, and then there was a court for the women and the children. They were separated. It was like a class or a caste system almost in some ways. Now, those of you that are soldiers, you kind of get this, right? Isn't this kind of mandated on you as a soldier? There's enlisted and there's officers, right? And though you work together and you work inside of that rank, there's a difference between working outside of that, working in that rank, and then also fraternizing. Isn't that the phrase that they use? The word we only use in that context, fraternizing. Hanging out together and crossing the rank boundary lines. So I think one, something we have to understand here is that God's economy is different than both the Roman economy and the U.S. government military economy. While there is still leadership in the church and in the kingdom of God, there should be no separation because of it. We should welcome all people who have accepted Jesus, regardless of their social, economic, or intellectual position, not to mention anything about their physical appearance or physical abilities. We should be accepting them all as brothers, as sisters, and receiving them. Since all, are, since all of us are little children of the same father, all of us have the same value and the same position. We're all sons and daughters bought with the same price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of that, we need to accept one another. But I think it's one thing to consider yourself less than others. That's that humility we talked about. This is, that's one part of that humility. But it's another thing um, to accept others that are not accepted in society and even to embrace them, which is exactly what Jesus did. In Mark 9.36, he said he took the child and had him stand among him and taking him in his arms... Would, would you agree that there's a difference between embracing and tolerating? I think in most church families, there's a lot of tolerating. Especially when that person's different than you are. But Jesus says we need to be embracing. We need to be accepting, welcoming. A truly humble person does not concern himself with position or power, but it's concerned about active service, especially toward those who are most in need. Humility recognizes my place in the big picture. I'm just a child like everyone else. But humility also recognizes others as valuable because they are children of Yahweh also. Think about it. If they were significant enough to Jesus for him to die for their sins, shouldn't they be significant to us? One of my commentaries put it this way. To the one who welcomes a little child like this in my name is not welcoming literal children, but children defined in the previous verses, those who humble themselves to become like children, um, i.e. Jesus' true disciples. They're not welcoming because they are great, wise, or mighty, but because they come in the name of Jesus. So we need to be like little children and that we need to be willing to be submissive and servants and humble in that way. We need to be welcoming other little children. And he uses the phrase little children. We need to be welcoming other little children, meaning other that are part of God's family, part of God's kingdom. Remember, we started this phrase, who is the greatest in the kingdom? 
and these teachings continue about the kingdom. And then he goes on with a very tough, tough teaching. And it's the third part of this about being careful not to cause a little child to fall away. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. So verse 6 is another one of these big transitional key phrases. Anyone who, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me. So again, catch that phrase, little ones who believes in me. He's not just talking about the physical child. He's making it clear that he's talking about anybody who has accepted Jesus as a savior, who has believed in Christ as the Messiah. Anyone who causes another believer to fall away, this is who he's talking to. That would be all the disciples. It would include the 12 disciples. And we're not just talking about young children anymore. We're talking about all the followers of Jesus. And Jesus will refer, matter of fact, Jesus is going to refer to his disciples as little children as he continues to teach how they should live in his absence. In John 13, 33, he says, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer and you will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. He looked at his disciples and he called them little children. You have to understand this phrase, little children, is, is interchangeable with this concept of disciple or follower. And he's saying, listen, anybody who causes a follower of Jesus to fall away, to, to leave that faith, to leave that belief, woe to that person. The word used there, I've highlighted the Greek word, is scandalize. And it means to push away or to cause to sin or to, to drive away. And I highlighted it there so you can see just how many times the version of that word shows up. It's a severe warning. You don't just say that over and over and over again unless you really want them to get it. Whoever causes a follower of Jesus to fall away from following Yahweh, it'd be better for him to be horribly killed, death by drowning, than to face the, face the wrath of God, is what he's saying. Um, a large millstone was the large stone, probably the upper stone, um, that was turned often by a donkey. So you can picture this big stone on top of another stone. You're like, I, I can't picture this. Okay, I'll give you a picture. Um, so picture that big stone, and you'd have a donkey kind of latched onto that, and that donkey would just kind of walk around in circles, and the grain would go underneath, and they'd keep pushing the grain back in to get it ground more and more and more. Um, so it would have weighed probably up to several tons. He said, it's better for a person to be thrown into the sea, not just a little river or a lake, but into the sea. You've got this, this endless depth you're thinking about with this massive weight around his neck. That's terrifying. Execution by drowning was a frequent uh, Roman punishment and was terrifying for people in that day, especially in the Hellenistic sense, because there was no burial. And so in that society, there was no chance for peace in the afterlife because you weren't able to be buried in, in their mindset, in the way they were thinking. Um, so Jesus' point is that this would be, that even this, 
being, having that around your neck thrown into the ocean and drowning would be better than facing the wrath of God for the person who is intentionally leading people astray from God. The good news is he also gives a remedy, which sounds really harsh. He says, but it's better if your hand or your foot scandalizes you to cut it off, and if your eye scandalizes you to pluck it out. Now, if that were the case, most of us would be blind, and we'd be missing limbs, right? If he's talking physically, literally here, you wouldn't be able to see the screen, and I wouldn't be able to turn the pages in my Bible, right? These are the exact words that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you remember that back in Matthew chapter 5. It was probably about a, over a year ago when we hit it. And Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 29 said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's the second time Jesus brings up this exact lesson and uses these words. In the Sermon on the Hill, Matthew 5, he's speaking to the crowds, and he's talking about individual accountability. If you have something in your life that's causing you to be offensive to God, get rid of that thing in your life. Make it as if it's cut off and not something you could ever do again. Just get rid of it. In Matthew 18, the context is not on the individual. Who is it on? It's on the kingdom. It's on the church. So there's possibly two meanings, not just the individual meaning of cutting, off, cutting out the things in our lives that would dishonor God, but also there may be individuals in a church that are leading people astray. It's possible. Not only is it possible, it happens all the time. And it may be that part of this command is that you need to cut them off as well. Not cut them off as people, but cut them out of fellowship, cut them out of teaching, cut them out of positions of authority. You're going to see this coming up in the next section that David's going to teach on next week. And I think he's teaching both here, not just the individual accountability, but the corporate accountability. We need to remove sinful actions and thoughts from our own lives but in the context of community, we, need to, we might also have to remove sinful people from positions in leadership that are doing damage to the body of Christ. So as we wrap up this morning, this section of teaching, the disciples were concerned about who was the greatest, which sounds really prideful and arrogant, and it became an, an argument among them. And Jesus said, listen, let me tell you what it's supposed to really be like in the kingdom of God. I could probably rephrase that today and say, let me tell you what it's really supposed to be like in the church of God. I shouldn't need the title, right, reverend, blah, 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 whatever, to, to show that I'm important or significant. My title as elder just means that God has a specific ministry for me that he's called me to. It does not make me more important than any of you. Do you understand that? We are all, if we've accepted Christ, we are all children of the same father. We are all members of the same family. It's not that we need titles to be significant or positions to be important. In our church, we have to kind of talk people into being deacons, but in some churches, 
it's a very high position that you as ascribe to and you have the, the title, the name tag that says deacon. Right? You may even have your picture on the wall. Right? But if you do, I trust, I, I promise you, there will also be a wall with all the pictures of the past pastors as well. It's not about position. It's not about title. Jesus is saying, listen, it's not about importance. It's not about who you're over or how significant you are. It's about how significant he is and how we can serve and live for one another. In the economy of God, it's the upside down of our world. It's not about rank and power and position. It's about setting those aside so that Jesus gets all the rank, all the power, and all the position. It's for his kingdom, not for our kingdom. Now, I'm not going to pick on you if you have a me wall. None of you have that, right? You know what I'm talking about? Is that, is that too old of a phrase? Because I know my dad used it, so it might, you know, it, you still use that today? You know, you have all your certificates, all your plaques, all your medals, all your awards. My kids had me shelves, right, with all the trophies from soccer and all the medals, you know. It's okay to care about accomplishment, and it's okay to strive for being in authority and having positions, but it's never okay for those things to become more important than the people God has called you to serve and minister to. Does that make sense? And that's what we're talking about here. We, as a church, we must be humble enough that we're willing to serve others. Nobody's above anything. I mean, trust me, the elders of this church have cleaned toilets. We vacuum carpets. And we, do, we crawl around in insulation. I know that some churches where that never happened because I'm the pastor, I don't do that stuff. If it's got to get done, it gets done. And we're all here to serve one another, right? That's what we should be doing. We must be accepting others, not worried about their rank or their status. I, I remember one time we had an officer who attended this church for just a little while. I'm kind of glad it was a little while. Because as they sat in this church, they looked around and they saw a bunch of enlisted people. And I remember this person telling me, I can't attend here. There's too many enlisted people. I said, then you don't belong here. And you should leave. There's no place for that in God's church. We must be accepting of others, especially when they're different from us, especially when they're not in the same position as us. Let's be honest, though. It's easy to love people who are like us, right? But I'll tell you, the scariest thing in my mind is a whole church full of me. I'm thankful God made each of you different than me. And you're probably really thankful, too, right? We need to accept one another. And then we need to make sure that we are drawing people to God and not pushing them away. And we can do that in so many ways, often by very hypocritical or very surface things. The man who helped build this structure that we're in right now, I remember the first time he showed up at a service, we were meeting at the YMCA in Watertown, and he came in with a pair of cut-off jeans with the little strings hanging down. He had sandals on, he had big bushy hairy legs and gruff beard. He had his sleeves rolled up on his t-shirt, which was, I don't know, some kind of cigarette or something on the, the front or beer or something on the front of his shirt, and he had a pack of cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve. He walked into the service, I'll never forget it, because he opened the door and there was a leak in the, in the, in the pool above the night before, and when he opened the door, the whole ceiling fell in. <laughs> and he, I remember him saying, you know, 
I always said if I went back to church, that would happen. <laughs> Wasn't as bad as I thought, he said. <laughs> and I remember talking to him about that, and he brought up the fact months later about why he dressed that way. He said, you know, I attended a service when I lived down in California, and I came in, and he said, I had nice clothes on. I had a pair of, like, dockers and, a, like, a polo shirt or something. And I was told that my haircut was inappropriate and I was dressed inappropriately. He said, I walked out of that church and have not been back since I walked in here. He said, and I dressed that way to see if you would accept me the way that I am or if I have to change to be the way that you want me to be. Can I tell you, we can make a lot of things that can push people away from God. And we need to be careful that we don't. And if we have those things, we need to cut them off. We need to get rid of them so that people can be accepted in the place where God is. As a matter of fact, A.W. Tozer said this, because Christ Jesus came to the world clothed in humility, he will always be found among those who are clothed with humility. He'll be found among humble people. If you want to be in the presence of God, it's not going to be among the arrogant because they don't need God. It'll always be among the humble. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not based on the works or the words that we do, but on childlike humility of spirit. It's not in who we have power or sway over. It's in who has power and sway over us and how we respond. And so as we close this morning, um, I think it's a fitting reminder that we are called to be humble like Jesus was humble. And I want to leave you with a scripture passage that talks about this exact topic framed in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for the love and compassion of Jesus. Lord, that you would give up your throne in heaven to take on a broken body and come live among us and die for us. That you would set an example of humility and service like that. Father, may that motivate us to live the same way toward each other. Teach us to be humble. Teach us to be servants. Help us to accept others the way you accept them. 
And Father, show us ways that we might be pushing people away from you and help us to draw them closer to you. Father, this is your kingdom, not ours. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom will come and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means that we need to be doing the things that you do here on this earth to reflect you to the world around us. Help us to be faithful to that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.